Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 3 tonight. Revelation chapter 3. You may notice on some tables, I have a handout. I very rarely do this, but I thought this would be a good summary of last week and this week as far as Jesus' message to the seven churches. So if you'd like one, just pick one up. There's some extras lying around as well. It gives you sort of a great overview of uh, what we talked about last week and some of what we will talk about this week. By the way, as we were worshiping the Lord, I, I couldn't help but think that it's so great to worship the God of the universe. The Bible teaches us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so any of us and any group of us as Christians can come together in any place and we can, in a sense, set that place apart and, and, and make it God's, if you will. Even a school cafeteria. And we can make this place a place of worship for the hour that we're here on Tuesday night. You think about all the Christians all over the world who meet in a lot less favorable conditions than school cafeterias. And though you will not hear this on the news, you need to know to be encouraged if you don't hear this kind of news. That there are many, many, many thousands of people coming to faith in Christ in the Middle East, in China, in Russia right now, like never before, you see. And, and people are coming to Christ. You won't hear it on the news. But there, there are people coming to the Lord all over the world. The only way we hear of this is through, through missionaries and mission work and people that are literally on the ground in these places who are able to report back out of those places. And so I just want to just rejoice in the fact that though we may get discouraged and though we may look around and, and, and just look at our own little slice of the world and wonder what in the world's going on, we've got to understand the earth is the Lord's and He's working and people are coming to Him. And He, as He is teaching us here in Revelation, is going to move this world one day towards acknowledging Jesus Christ as the Lord, you see. But He starts with the church. And that's why His messages in chapter 2 and 3 are to His church. He is holding His church accountable so that they will be an accurate representation of who He is to the world. That's why the book of Revelation is so important. Instead of getting caught up in prophecy, in a sense like many people do when they come to the book of Revelation, we need to look at this book with fresh eyes. We need to see it as an unveiling primarily of Jesus Christ in His glory. And we need to see it as a book of worship that is encouraging us to know who Jesus really is in order that it might inspire us and drive us to worship the one that is revealed to us here in all of his glory. And so he comes to his church and he commends them and then he'll correct them. And in fact, I'm going to get a little ahead of myself, but in chapter 3, verse 19, I want you to see this tonight. And then I'll go back and pick it up at the beginning. Notice Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, but really to all his churches, to all his people, he says these words. All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. The word rebuke 
means to correct. It means to be held accountable. If God loves us, there will be correction in our lives. There will be a call to account in our lives. He loves us that much to do that. And then the word discipline is a word that's used to train and to mold. In other words, God doesn't just correct what needs to be corrected, but literally trains us and will mold us to do what is right because he loves us, you see. How accepting are we of God's correction and training? In a sense, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 is part of that. It, it is showing that Jesus is going to correct things in the life of every church that needs to be corrected. He will commend the things that need to be commended. And He is ongoing, this ongoing process of training and molding us to be an accurate representation of Him in the world. So with that reminder... We go back and we're going to take these in order tonight. Let's begin with the church at Sardis. Unlike the other churches where Jesus starts out with a commendation, and really he does that with every other church, he really doesn't do that with Sardis, and he really doesn't do that with Laodicea, two of the three churches we're going to look at tonight. He, he jumps right in because, unlike the other churches that we looked at even last week, Evil in the church or falling short of God's standard was the exception rather than the rule. Tonight, two of the churches we're going to look at, it's the habit. It's the norm rather than the exception. And so he writes, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. And we talked last week about because he is God, obviously he's omniscient. He's also omnipresent. He has an intimate knowledge of everything that goes on in our lives, everything that goes on in our heads, everything that goes on in our hearts. And obviously he knows everything that's going on in the fellowship of local churches, you see. Intimately acquainted with everything that goes on. He knows. That's one of the reasons why one day he's going to be able to be the judge. He's going to be able to be the just and righteous judge because everything that he decides, everything that that he will do will be absolutely fair and equitable based on his unbelievable intimate knowledge of everything that's been done. Unlike any other attempt to be able to judge to that degree. So he says, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation that you are alive. But in reality, you are dead. This is sobering. Any local church and even any individual Christian needs to stop and just make this a reminder that we continually remind ourselves of throughout our Christian life and the life of any local church. And that is this. That a local church can be filled with a lot of energetic activity. That's what the words mean that Jesus is describing. Oh, they're active. Is there ministry going on? Absolutely. Is there service going on? Oh my goodness. This church was busy. And they had a reputation amongst other churches and other people that they were alive. But this is a great example that that 
Do we really seek out or care more about what God thinks of us or what we or other people think of us? Is our evaluation really accurate? Is other people's evaluation really accurate? And is the only evaluation really at the end of the day that matters the one that Jesus gives us through his Holy Spirit? And Jesus is saying to this church, you're a dead church. You have a reputation that you're alive because of all the activity and all the ministry and all the service that goes on. But in my mind, from my perspective, you're dead. And what Jesus is saying is simply this. He's saying, this church may be active, but there's no real spiritual life or power or energy. There's no real spirit either to bring the activity about, to enable the activity to happen. There's no spirit, my spirit, in it or behind it. And we all have to be careful of that. Every church has to be careful of that. One of the most sobering questions we as Christians should be always asking ourselves is this. Is all the ministry and service and activity that I'm doing could I have done that without the Holy Spirit? Because basically what Jesus is saying is, how many churches exist out there who are doing all this ministry? And as far as their community goes and all that, people say, man, look at that church. Look at all that they're doing. But would the Holy Spirit even be part of that? Does he even have to be there? Or are they just doing it on their own? Without his leadership? without his guidance, without his empowerment and enablement. And see, the the kind of spiritual life and spiritual ministry that God wants to see is ministry that is led, directed, guided by the Spirit, and that which is empowered and enabled by the Spirit. It's part of the reason why We encourage Christians, and the gals are going through a study of this on Thursday night with their spiritual gifts. Folks, these are supernatural gifts that God gives to His people so that as we even use our gifts, that's the Holy Spirit working through that. That's not us doing something. That's why it's so important that Christians not only find out what their gifts are, but learn what it means to walk, to live, to be filled by the Spirit. Because much of what we think is ministry and service really has very little to do with the Holy Spirit and bringing about spiritual life in people. See, you and I will know where the Spirit is because even in a tangible way, we can feel the Spirit. Not to bring God down to feeling, but we can feel the Spirit when He's moving and when He's working and when He's present and when He's not being quenched or being grieved. And we know that the Spirit of God is working when He's bringing about growth and life and and increase and multiplication within the body of Christ. We can sense that. And we know it's not happening because we're trying to manipulate it or we're skillful in being able to market and advertise and, and run all these programs. No, that doesn't have anything to do with spiritual life. That's where a church concentrates on form and function rather than life, you see. And Jesus is saying, You have a reputation that you are alive, but 
you're actually dead. We need to be careful that we don't get caught up into being energetically active. Even, you know, saying, well, I'm doing this for God. And, and this is God's work. And yet somehow there's no real spiritual component to it. In other words, I guess even to make it clear, here's what I'm saying. You could take a non-Christian and you could stick them in this position, give them maybe a little training, and they could do it. Because there's no reliance on the Spirit needed. There's no dependence on the Spirit needed. There's no spiritual aspect to it at all. And see, when God created the church, He wants His church. We're going to talk about this Sunday. It's amazing to me how God lines all this up. But He wants His church to be a spiritual house, Peter says. A habitation of the Spirit of God. Where people see, well, the difference between Christians coming together... And any other group coming together is there's something spiritual going on that meets us in the spirit at the soul level. It's not just physical. It's not just emotional. There's a spiritual component to it, you see. A supernatural component. And so Jesus says this, wake up, verse 2. Pay strict attention to where you are from my perspective, and strengthen what remains that is about to die. I think what he's saying there, he's not contradicting himself. In a sense, in his mind, dead doesn't mean totally dead. There's no chance of, in a sense, resurrecting. But he's like, you better pay attention to to some of these things because if you don't start paying strict attention to these things, you're not ever going to be able to resurrect what little bit of life may be left within this local assembly. Because he says, I have not found your deeds complete. In the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you received and heard and obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will never know at what hour I will come against you. He does say this, the one commendation to the church at Sardis, and he doesn't give it at the beginning. He gives it here sort of in the middle towards the end. He says, you do have a few individuals in Sardis who have not stained their clothes. This talks about pollution, contamination, defilement. They have remained pure to the Lord and kept Him first. And notice the promise that Jesus gives. They will walk with me dressed in white. Literally, Jesus says, they'll take walks with me. Do you know, I believe that that promise is to all believers, not just to those in Sardis. I think Jesus is saying, one day, guess what? You're going to be able to take walks with me in glory. Think about that. That's a cool thing to think about. Walking with Jesus in glory. Because they are worthy, verse 4. Now, Jesus isn't saying we're worthy in and of ourselves. We know that we are made worthy through the blood of Jesus Christ. But they're worthy in this sense. The word here is a word that means they are giving proper value and weight to who he is. Therefore, that's why they are worthy from his perspective. In other words, they've 
They've realized who he really is. And they're giving him preeminence. They're giving him, those few, first place in their lives. They are worshiping him as he deserves. Therefore, they are worthy because they understand, ultimately, he is worthy. The one who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing. By the way, the word white literally means in the Greek, dazzling. You're going to dazzle. I see some of you in, well, I hope I see all of you in heaven. That didn't come out right. Uh, Let me say, when I see you in heaven, it'll be like, wow, you look really good. You're dazzling. It's a great garment you have there. And I will never erase his name from the book of life. Now, this phrase has caused a lot of issues over the years. I personally believe that this is actually a reassurance from Jesus that I'm not ever going to wipe your name out, so don't worry about it. Instead of looking at it the other way, I think the original language is very clear here that Jesus is actually trying to reassure them that I'm never going to wipe your name out. I'm never gonna. It's not like God has a busy eraser up there. and He just can't wait to wipe people's names out. That's not who God is. But I will declare his name before my father and before his angels. The one who has an ear had better hear what the spirit says to the churches. And of course, again, we talked about that last week where Jesus and the spirit are one and the same because God is one in three persons. And so even though this is Jesus giving a message to the church, Jesus is saying this is also the spirit speaking as well, because God, the father, God, the son and God, the spirit are never going to contradict each other. They're always going to work in unison and in unity. And, and so what you hear from one, you will hear from the other, too. Then there's the church at Philadelphia. This is the faithful church. In fact, uh, he really does not give them any message of correction. It's sort of just the opposite of the church at Sardis and the church coming at Laodicea. So I want to share this with you because I think it, it's encouraging. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Holy One the true one or trustworthy one, and the one who holds the key of David. And by the way, the word holds means to hold permanently. He never lets go of the key of David. The power and authority of David, the promises to him, and the kingdom that God promised through him. And he says, I am one who opens doors that no one can shut. And I am one who shuts doors that no one can open. And he's saying to this church, look, always remember my sovereignty. I have the keys of hell and death. I have the keys of the kingdom of David. I have all a power and authority. That's why it was so profound when at the end, when Jesus appeared to his disciples before he gave them the great, or as he gave them the great commission, he said, all authority and power has been given to me. And now I give it to you and grant it to you as you go and make disciples. When we begin to think about what Jesus is saying, it should rock our world. 
Jesus, in a sense, has conferred his power and authority to his people to go and make disciples. And we must always remember, he is in charge. He rules. He's on the throne. He is sovereign. And so he's simply saying, if there's a door that I have shut, no one's going to open that door. So don't keep trying to bust down a door that I have shut. You're just wasting your time. I'm sovereign. On the other hand, as a church and as individual Christians, if you know that the Lord has led you personally or as a church, he's given us an open door to to walk through, to see some opportunity, then we better seize it. Because he's opened that door. He's given us that opportunity. And and it doesn't mean that every opportunity that we hear about that we should seize. What he's saying is, if you know that he has come personally to you, or he has has worked in the hearts of a group of people like a local church, and, and we are being led to go down this path, and here's the door that he's opened, then he would say to us, if I've opened the door, and you know I've opened it for you, then go through that door. Don't be afraid of all the other stuff. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I can open doors that no one else can open. I can shut doors that no one can keep open. Always remember the sovereignty of God throughout our lives. God can work in ways that none of us can. We always have to factor in the God equation when we're figuring things. You know, we might look at things from strictly a human level and go, well, that just isn't going to work or this can't happen. And And we're looking at strictly from a human perspective. One of the things Jesus is saying here by using the open and shut door is simply that you always have to factor me in, you see. And the other thing, too, because these messages messages are so personalized to each of these individual churches, Philadelphia was probably, at this point, the second main trade route from the Middle East into Asia. And so it literally was a crossroads of the world. People were traveling always to Philadelphia, though, to go somewhere else. And I think part of what he's saying here is, do you realize your strategic location? That just like Rome, that the people passing through your town and maybe even visiting your assembly or you touching their lives as they come into Philadelphia for a while and then go on somewhere else, that you literally have an open door, an opportunity to shine my light and to reflect who I really am to all these people who then will scatter all over the ancient East. Notice he says, I know your deeds. Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. This word means power and resources arising from numbers. That should be encouraging to every little church. Because he says, look, I know that you're not a big church. I know that you don't have all the power and resources that bigger ministries have. But that doesn't seem to bother Jesus, does it? He says, you have obeyed my word and you have not denied my name. That's what Jesus cares about. Not how big a church is, not how small a church is, how faithful we are. He takes care 
of adding to his church. He says, listen, I'm going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan so that they say they are Jews and are not, but are lying. Look, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In some way, Jesus is going to vindicate these people even before the future kingdom. And he says, because you have kept, verse 10, my admonition to endure steadfastly, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Notice how important Jesus thinks endurance and being steadfast is. It means to persevere patiently is what the words mean. To endure steadfastly. Sometimes as Christians and as churches, we have to persevere patiently through seasons of our time with God. And he's saying, you've done well. It wasn't all, you know, rosy all the time. It wasn't all, you know, good. You had to go through some rough times, but you did it well. And I commend you for it. And then he says, I'm coming soon. Many people take the word soon as, well, Jesus, that was 2,000 years ago and you haven't come yet. But that's not what the word soon means. It means quickly or speedily. In other words, what he's saying is, when I decide to come, there's not going to be like any time to go, oh, wait a minute, God, let me get my life straightened out here. You know, and then, then you can, no. Jesus is saying, when God acts, you and I, and our, you know, we might think, boy, it takes God a long time to open up a door or to act or bring something about. But isn't it true that when God does act, boom, there it is. It's just there. there there's no like, oh, I didn't see that coming. That's because when God decides to do something, he just can decide to do something. And he doesn't need to cut through all the red tape and bureaucracy. And then he says this. Hold on to what you have, verse 11, so that no one can take away your crown. The word hold on means to be powerful, to keep faithful, if you will. And he's not saying that we lose our salvation. He says we'll lose our victory. That's what the word crown means. It's not the Greek word diadema, which speaks of a crown of sort of, uh, of the rule of authority and all that one who has a position of a king. This is the Greek word stephanos, which was the wreath that was given to victors, especially in the Olympic or Ismithian games in Corinth. It was the crown or wreath of victory. And Jesus simply saying, don't let someone else steal your victory. You are, you are victorious through me. Stay on the path you are on. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to the... Don't go back. Don't go backwards. And, and don't let someone take from you what you've accomplished and how far you've come. Just keep going forward. Until I come. Because he says, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never depart from it. There's language of stability. There's language of immovability. You see. 
And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name as well. I don't even know what that is. We don't know what that is. I know one thing. We're going to have a lot of names on us. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus has a lot of cool things planned. Well, let's get for the last 10 minutes to the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, which is an accurate translation. It doesn't mean that Jesus was a created being as many cults and false religions use this verse and others. This word in the original means the active cause of all things. And we know that Jesus was the Creator. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Literally, this church in this condition was disgusting to Jesus Christ. Disgusting because of their lukewarmness. The only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's a word that literally means tepid. Lukewarm. That's what it means. And yet it is a a metaphor, if you will, for indifference, complacency, just like, eh. You know, with cold water, cold water can be useful for things. Hot water can be useful for things. I think that's why he says, I, I wish you were either cold or hot. In both those conditions, I don't think he talked about cold Christians and hot Christians. I think he's using an analogy that they would understand because in, in their town, they had lukewarm water. There were two other systems of water that came, one from Colossae, and you can always remember that because Colossae starts with the letter C, and they got really good cold water in Colossae. And then there was another town near them called Hierapolis, starts with an H. They got really good hot water there. Laodicea had lukewarm water. It was really good for nothing. And, and the whole message of the Bible is, again, that the, the reason why God wants to build us into a spiritual house and conform us to the image of Christ and put us on a lampstand and put us in a prominent place in our community is so we can accurately represent Him and be fit and useful for Him. Lukewarmness is not fit to be used. And I think that's why it's so disgusting. Because He didn't save us just to have our sins forgiven and for us to have a ticket to go to heaven. He saved us so that He could use us to impact and influence other people for the kingdom of God. And it's disgusting when He sees the fact that He died, as we talked about even Sunday, so that He could redeem and set people free and use them and mold them and train them and make them His disciples. And, and use all this potential and spiritual gifting and all the things that He poured into them. And yet, they're just lukewarm. Maybe going through the motions a little bit, but no real spiritual life and energy and activity. Can I tell you, 
One of the reasons why I hate to miss a Sunday and Tuesday, and it's not just because I'm the pastor, because if you knew me back before I was a pastor, you would know I would be here on Sunday and Tuesday even if I wasn't the pastor. Especially in a church like this. Because I get excited and I get encouraged when I get around you people and see your spiritual energy and your spiritual life and your spiritual fervor and zeal and your love for God and you're wanting to do things, you know, for God to worship him and to serve him in the right way and to grow and to learn more and to then share your faith and all of that. Folks, that's what a spiritual assembly is supposed to be about. There's not supposed to be any lukewarmness involved. If there's any group of people that should not be lukewarm, it should be a group of Christians in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the problem. The problem isn't that they're lukewarm. That, that's not a transitional state. That's the final state. The reason they got to that condition was because of their unconscious need. They were totally oblivious as to where they really were. Notice what he says. Because you say, verse 17, I am rich and have acquired great wealth and have need of nothing. Literally in the Greek, that word nothing also means no one. A church so self-sufficient so unconscious of how they really desperately need the Lord and how they need to rely and depend upon Him. No, this church is so far out there that they're like, almost like, even if it's unconscious, it's like, God, we got this. We we don't need you. We don't need anything. Look Look at all the wealth that we've got as a church. Look at all the material things. Look at all the ministries. Look at all the programs. Look at all the people. What do we need to depend and rely on you for? What do we need to pray and get on our knees for you for? We got this covered, God. We don't need anything. That's a very dangerous place to get. That is a church that is now independent of its head, Jesus Christ, which is why later he's standing at the door and knocking to come in. Because in a sense, it's a church, but they've literally kicked him out because they're like, God, we've got this. We don't need you. We can handle this. We have to be careful of that. May we never get to a point where we are not totally dependent and relying on the the Lord to do whatever we do. We should never be ashamed to say, I need you. Every hour I need you. So Jesus says, you do not realize that you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. All these terms basically speak about great need. Jesus is saying, you don't realize the desperately needy condition you're in. You are a church that's so pompous and proud because you got all this, and yet the most important thing in your fellowship, me, you don't have. It's a reminder that a church can have everything from a worldly perspective. But if we don't have Jesus Christ at the very center of it, none of it really matters. If we're not doing it for the honor and glory of Jesus, then it doesn't matter. It's just going to burn up. And so he says, please take my advice 
And buy gold from me refined by fire so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. Buy eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All these things were important to the Laodiceans and they thought they had them. One of the cool things is Laodicea was actually known throughout the world at this time for its eye salve to help with eyesight. Jesus says, you, you, you don't think you need eye salve, do you? You can't spiritually discern or have any insight for anything because you're leaving me out. You're leaving the spirit out. You're doing it all on your own. You need to come back to me and start there. And then verse 19. All those I love. I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. The word means fervent, zealous, and repent. Now verse 20 has been used by many, I think, Christians down through the years as an evangelistic verse. I'm not going to say that that's wrong. I see how you can apply this. But let's remember that one of the reasons we do book studies and study the Bible the way we do at the Oasis is so we can keep verses like this in context. And so you'll notice in context, verse 20 has nothing to do with an individual and his heart. This is Jesus standing outside the door of the fellowship in Laodicea saying, I want to come in to the church. I want to be the head. I want to be a part of your fellowship again. How sad that the ruler of the universe, the one who created it all, died for it all, sustains it all, and now is the head of the church, is standing outside of his own church? When he writes, listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. Jesus is promising, hey, you open up the door, you, you invite me in, I'll be there. And by the way, the word meal here is a really interesting word. It means Messiah's feast. He said, I'm not just going to share a meal like Maybe a sandwich and a bag of potato chips. Not that there's anything wrong with a sandwich and a bag of potato chips. But Jesus saying, you invite me in, we're going to sit down to the Messiah's feast. Because I'm the good shepherd. I take my sheep to the best grazing land. I give them the best pasture. I'm a good shepherd. You'll never be hungry when we follow Jesus Christ. And then he says, I love this. I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying, folks, the reason I'm rebuking and disciplining and, and wanting to correct things in my people and train them and mold them is because I'm fitting my people to rule and reign with me. That's who we are. We are to rule and reign with Christ. This is our future. This is our destiny. And God is working in us to prepare us for the destiny that awaits all of us in Jesus Christ. 
We will all be part of that rule and reign. That's one of the reasons he's done chapter 2 and 3. He's not only reminding us that he's moving the universe towards a worldwide acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord, but that he's moving his people towards their ultimate destiny too. Which is to sit with him on his throne. To rule and reign with Christ. That's what he wants you to be focused on. That's what's going to keep you going when times are tough. Is when you and I remind ourselves, I'm going to rule and reign with Christ and all that I'm going through is preparing me and refining me and purifying me and strengthening me so that I can be a prince or princess for God one day in His kingdom and help Him to rule this world. That's our destiny. And He says, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next week, we dive into chapter 4. I'm just going to say this. Personally, just my own personal, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are my two favorite chapters in the whole book. And so I can't wait to share with you in the next couple weeks from chapters 4 and 5. Before we close in prayer tonight, really important announcement. This was a week of eating. Talk about feasting. So we had pizza tonight. But Sunday is our potluck. And all of you have already started telling me about some of the wonderful things you're bringing. I'm already starting to get like, you know. And then, this isn't, this isn't the potluck. This is a separate thing that I needed to make clear tonight. Because a lot of people... We are also, along with our potluck, going to have a chili cook-off. In other words, if you're one of those people, you go, what? You know, I make a mean pot of chili. I think my chili could win in a contest. I think I'm going to bring a pot of my chili, and I'm going to put my chili into this contest, and we're going to have a group of judges, and we're going to actually hand out prize and everything. If you'd like to be a part of that, you bring your pot of chili on Sunday. And we're going to have a chili cook-off as part of our potluck. Now, again, just a reminder as well, even though we don't have any guests outside of our church that we've invited to this potluck, please remember to bring enough that it's going to feed everybody so that even the last person in line, if we have as good a crowd as we've been having, uh, that the last person in line, the 200 and 50th person in line is going to get something that the first couple of people did. So just remember to maybe bring a little bit extra so that everyone that comes through the line Sunday has plenty to eat. And if you get an opportunity to talk with some other people uh, from our church family before Sunday, just remind them of that too. And if you know of somebody that's not here tonight or, you know, maybe they didn't get that clear message about the chili cook-off and you're going... My friend here, they really do a good chili. I'm going to call them up and see if they'll cook something like that. Go ahead. We would love to have, we'd love to have a whole host of chili cook-off contestants for Sunday. More chili? I'm there. All right. Let's close in prayer. Lord, these messages to, to these churches were not intended just for them. That's why, Lord, You included them in Your Word to churches 
of all ages. Because in these messages, there's a message for all churches of all time and for all Christians of all time. Many things, Lord, that we can practically apply to our lives and the life of our church. And God, I just pray that as Jesus talked about this over and over again, that more than anything else, that as we hear the Spirit speak, as we hear the Spirit teach us, that, Lord, we would have ears that would perk up and listen attentively. That we would be good listeners, focused listeners, especially when we know the Spirit of God wants to say something to us. Because, God, we know that if we're attentive to the Spirit and we follow the leading and guiding and direction of the Spirit, then we'll always find ourselves in the right place doing the right thing in the right way. So God, use these messages to the churches in our church's life. Help us, Lord, to become more of what you want us as a fellowship to be. Never to be complacent or indifferent or self-satisfied. Help us always, Lord, to realize our great need of you each and every day of our life. Help us to depend upon You. Help us to invite the Spirit in at all times. Help us not to go through the motions of spiritual ministry and service and work for You, doing something that an unsafe person could do without the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be a spiritual house where spiritual things are taking place where people's lives are being transformed and changed, where homes are being transformed and changed, where people are coming to know You, where people are being redeemed and set free, where things are happening and growth is taking place, where nothing is staying the same, but we're always moving forward with You. Lord, that's the kind of fellowship we want. Because we want to bring honor and glory to You. We want to be that lampstand that You can set out here in this part of Arizona that can accurately represent who You, Jesus, are. So enable us to do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, have a great week. We hope to see you on Sunday.